0: Hello, and welcome to another edition of Brussels Sprouts. I'm Andrea Kendall-Taylor, and I'm so glad you can join us. Today, we are bringing you a second special edition of Brussels Sprouts, marking the first year anniversary of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Last week, we focused on the battlefield dynamics and the state and staying power of Western support. Today, we're turning our discussion to how one year of war has affected Russian stability and Putin's hold on power. During this past year, numerous factors, such as the Russian military's poor performance, Putin's botched mobilization last year, mounting casualties, economic challenges resulting from sanctions and export controls, and increasingly visible elite fissures have all raised questions about the political stability of the Russian regime. Over the next hour, we'll dive into all of this and more during a conversation with a group of leading scholars on Putin and authoritarianism. The conversation was recorded at a live CNAS event on Thursday, March second, and it builds on our recently released Russian Stability Tracker, which you can find on the CNAS website. But Without further ado, I want to very quickly introduce our stellar panel. Um, we're joined by Dr. Timothy Fry. Tim is the Marshall D. Schulman Professor of Political Science uh, of, politi- of sorry of Post-Soviet Policy at Columbia University. Uh, Dr. Marlene Laruelle is the director for the Institute of European, Russian, and Eurasian Studies, and the director of the Illiberalism Studies program at the George Washington University. Uh, Dr. Brian Taylor is the director of the Moynihan Institute of Global Affairs and professor of political science at Syracuse University. Um, and last but not least, we have Dr. Dan Treisman, who is professor of political science at UCLA, as well as a research associate at the National Bureau of Economic Research. And I should say he was on my dissertation committee a thousand years ago, um, and perhaps in part responsible for my interest in these issues. So um, if folks in the audience want to ask questions, you can do so uh, at CNES.org slash live uh, by scrolling down to the chat box. Please, be, do, please uh, identify yourself when you pose your question uh, or on Twitter, you can use the hashtag cnes uh, twenty twenty three. Okay, so Marlene, I want to start with you. Um, and back in September of uh, back in September, you wrote a New York Times op ed, a great piece titled "Putin is in trouble." And so, I want to provocatively ask you: Is he? Would you revise that assessment, or how are you thinking about Putin, kind of one year after his invasion?
1: Yeah, thank you so much, Andrea. Well, I was not the one choosing the title, so I don't think I I would have framed that like that. But yeah, no, I think, I mean, he was in trouble in relationship to the miscalculation that was made at the beginning of the war. I think that what we see now, one year after, is that the regime has been able to show a really quite good amount of resilience, right? It has been shaken several times, beginning of the war, mobilization time. And then each time he has been able to find a new equilibrium Each time, of course, this equilibrium is shifting it toward a more radical uh, ideological framework. We see the tensions between elites that you have been mentioning and that maybe we can uh, 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 question. But I think the resilience is a pretty impressive one that tells us that the regime seems to be pretty stable in moving, right? It's stable by being adaptable and flexible. We have a really strong kind of defensive consolidation movement among the Russian society that is also allowing the regime to stay in power and continue the war as it is doing. The sanctions have been pretty well managed by uh, the Russian technocratic uh, 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 element. And then the way Russia is reorienting itself toward the global south as also showing, I think, sign of resilience. So I would say that, no, the regime seems in a pretty kind of stable situation, at least on the short term.
0: One thing just to pull on, you said um, adaptable and flexible, which is often not the way that people conceive of the regime. Often you'll hear people describe it as brittle. Um, and I just wonder like if you as you're thinking about its ability to be adaptable, flexible, uh, resilient, what do you think are some of the key factors that have an, have enabled Putin um, to manage the challenges since the invasion?
1: I think because the regime is an ecosystem of different wasted interest groups, right? So you always have a balance, an equilibrium that has to be made. And of course, some groups can get outside of the picture, can be repressed, but the regime is still able to kind of manage and reinvent itself. We see that with the the sanction. And then the fact that even if the regime is getting much more brutal and repressive, there is no question. There is still ways it can talk to the population and secure this kind of defensive consolidation, but of course the room of maneuver is reducing right because of sanction, because of the war, because of the the immigration of the the, the part of the the Russian most brightest the brightest part of the population or the one that is the most kind of western oriented and so on so I think the room of maneuver is shrinking but there is still ways for the regime to adapt to new conditions.
0: Um, Tim, let me come to you on especially this economic piece, right? So Marlene just referenced the fact that room for maneuverability is somewhat limited. The sanctions have been in place in large part to constrict and constrain the regime. Certainly, I mean, people might debate about whether or not they're intended to destabilize Putin. I don't think that's the way the Biden administration would describe what they're doing, but they have had an effect on the economy, albeit less um, than we would have hoped about a year ago. And I, when you hear people talk about the effect of sanctions, you get a kind of good news, bad news story. Well, the good news is the economy is shrinking. Um, I, I, so just to put it to you, it is a little bit of a mixed picture. And so how, how are you thinking about where the Russian economy is and whether or not um, the kind of stagnation that we're seeing can cause, Putin's, cause problems for Putin um, in the near to medium term?
2: So sanctions are not just one thing and they don't have just one goal. So we need to unpack them, I think, in our discussion. And I think a lot, <clears throat> a lot of the popular discussion, they tend to get conflated and that makes it difficult for us to really have a, a good conversation about it. So one thing that the, the sanctions have done is signal to the world and to the Kremlin, uh, Western unity and not just Western unity, but also um uh, the alliance with uh, um, and the participation of countries like South Korea, Japan, and Taiwan—that's um, th- been really important. Um, I think the sanctions have helped to degrade Russia's uh, military efforts, which I think has been a key part of the sanctions regime by the the Biden administration. And indeed, I think the sanctions on logistics and trade have been the most successful in uh, you know just making it harder for Russia to get access to things like uh, semiconductors. Semiconductors, chips, uh, uh, avionics, uh, uh, and other kinds of high techs. Other sanctions haven't worked so haven't worked as we might have hoped. You know, the sanctions on the oligarchs. Uh, I'm sure they're not happy about them, but they're not really in a position to uh, uh, take that um, uh, uh, opposition and express it uh, uh, politically. Um, and the financial sanctions, I think, are having uh, an impact and making it. Um, uh, you know, difficult for Russia to continue to finance the war, um, but that's going to take time. And one point I would make is the next round of sanctions, particularly on the energy sector, are, I think the effects are going to look very different from what we saw uh, over the last year, where uh, Europe was reluctant to really sanction uh, o- uh, uh, gas and the oil sector and was willing to spend a lot of money in order to buy popular support at home. Now that they've found alternative routes, particularly for, for, for Russian gas to get gas from the United States, Norway, uh, and Algeria, now Europe is in a much better position and the sanctions might have uh, more bite. So you might say, well, Russia can always just sell to China, uh, but they're selling at a, at a bigger discount. And also, Russia can't use the energy club over China the same way they can or they could over, Eastern, uh, over Europe. Um, you know, they could divide and conquer Europe in a way that they really can't uh, when they uh, have, have relations with China.
0: Dan, say, kind of say, same theme to you, though. I mean, so obviously it's a personalist dictatorship. It relies quite a lot on patronage and keep to keep the elites in line. And so as the economy stagnates, uh, last year, what, about 2.2 percent contraction of GDP. Um, has that put strain on the elite? I mean, how, and both the elite and the public. So right at the same time, it's very hard to tell, I think, exactly what's happening with the economy. But when you look at measures like household um, expenditures and other things, that is going down. And so presumably, Russians are feeling an impact, uh, you know, on their tables and their pocketbooks. And so those two factors, how is the economy shaping elite satisfaction and buy-in to the regime and also kind of public Public support for Putin and his regime?
3: Well, uh, first of all, the elite. Obviously, they're very unhappy. Uh, the oligarchs are, are uh, losing a lot of their playgrounds uh, around the world. Their yachts are frozen, this sort of thing. But they really don't have any option. Uh, they're frozen out of the West. So it's not, and that's the whole point of the sanctions. So it's not that they have anywhere else to go. Uh, and uh, they know that uh, their assets within Russia are vulnerable uh, if they stick their head out and say anything. Uh, plus, their personal security could be vulnerable. So, I think discontent among the uh, business elite is not is not going to have any immediate uh, visible effect. Discontent among the general public uh, is more complicated. So. Uh, we're in the—we're still, after a year, in the early stages, sadly, of this war. I would say, and so far, uh, the public has rallied behind—I uh, would say—not—not not so much in support of the war, but rallied behind their country, which is in a war. Uh, so, when the opinion polls ask Russians, "Do you support the war?" I think what they really—the question they really answer—is, "Do you support your side?" In this war, and so we get very high figures. Um, for instance, interpreting the polls, you know, seventy-one percent say they support the war, but only forty percent say they would like the war to continue. About fifty percent uh, say they'd like to see peace negotiations. So I think uh, there's a rallying still. Uh, people are conscious that uh, they're able to spend less. Retail trade has gone down by about nine percent. The the effect on living standards is less, I think, than many anticipated at the beginning of the sanctions, uh, but it's still significant Uh, over the long term. It'll mean a an increasing decline in quality of goods available, goods and services available to to Russians uh, in a kind of depressing uh, environment. But uh, that'll take time. As as Tim said, a lot of these effects of the sanctions are going to take time uh, to really Uh, have an effect. Uh, So we're not really seeing that yet. Now, in the next year, if uh, we start to see more layoffs and uh, firm closures, and some are are definitely happening already, uh, then I think that could lead to uh, pockets of discontent around the country uh, based not on opposition to the war, but on uh, economic grievances and uh, frustrations And I think those uh, will require careful management by the Kremlin. And I'm not sure that it'll be able to do that while dealing with all the other crises that that, that, uh, the Kremlin faces uh, from the battlefield uh, to the international arena, uh, to the home front. Uh, So I think uh, I I certainly would not rule out that the economic consequences of the sanctions uh, of the export controls will have a bigger impact in the coming year than they did even in the first year.
0: Yeah. Um, Brian, I mean, obviously one of the key pillars of Putin's response to any domestic challenges has has been repression. And so I wonder if you can talk to us about kind of what you've been watching in terms of the security services. I think some people have argued that maybe the security services have been kind of the big winner out of all of this as Putin has had to rely ever more on repression to maintain control. Um, is that the case? Um, how would you, you know, how would you, how do you um, describe the the role of repression and the security services in Putin's ability to manage some of these mounting challenges that he will face?
4: So far, over the last year, they really haven't had any trouble dealing with uh, organized mass resistance, and part of the reason for that, of course, is many of the organizers are either in jail or outside the country. So the protests we've seen a lot of them have been more, more localized more spontaneous initiatives but nothing that would threaten the regime as a whole when when you talk about the services the secret services in Russia it's important to bear in mind there are multiple ones sometimes with overlapping jurisdictions so there's the federal security service which is the biggest and most responsible for internal uh, security, and the head of that, uh, Alexander Bortnikov, has known Putin since the 1970s. They share a past in Leningrad and in the KGB. Uh, if we look at uh, the National Guard, which is sort of the front line of uh, riot police and internal troops, it, it's called Ruskvarty in Russian. The head of that, Viktor Zolotov, uh, also has roots uh, you know, in St. Petersburg, also has roots in the KGB, worked closely with, with Putin for a long time. Uh, and then we have the Federal Guard Service, which is responsible for leadership security, including Putin's security. Uh, the head of that, Dmitry Kochnev, is less well-known, but he seems like a professional, unambitious, uh, loyal, and has been working in that service for a long time. So if we look at any of those agencies, we don't see any reason to think that they would present a threat to Putin at the moment, or that they uh, face any problems dealing with I- internal you know, mass movements. Uh, the other thing I guess I should throw in, because when we think about personalist dictatorships and whether they face threats from within the elites, we often talk about it in terms of coups. So there is the question of the military. Uh, the Russian military is quite a bit different than many of the militaries we see in these personalist dictatorships around the world. They haven't had a successful coup in Russia since 1801. Uh, and they tend to get involved in these leadership disputes either when the state is on the verge of collapse, like during World War I and the Russian Revolution, or at the end of the Soviet Union in 1991. Otherwise, they tend to be brought in by various civilian political actors. And I, I don't see any um, you know, clear way in which they would get involved, even despite the heavy losses they've taken, that it would lead to something uh, as extreme as resistance to the state.
0: Dan, I want to come back to you because I know it's something that you've kind of weighed in on as well. I mean, oftentimes when you have these discussions, it's people can't fathom that there would be a mass uprising or popular protest. And so they kind of go to the coup piece of it as the in in their framing of what risks Putin faces. And, you know, they'll bring up the economic parts and, you know, the, the elite are disgruntled, et cetera. But I agree with Brian, and I think this is what you've written as well, that coups are actually not particularly likely. Um, And there is some interesting research that even, especially while leaders are executing wars, and uh, the longer the war continues, the less immune to a coup they become. And so I wonder if, I I don't know if you agree with that, but I wonder if you can talk about um, why who wouldn't be at the top of your risk list for Putin? What are, what are those dynamics, um, and where do the risks come from then?
3: Sure, yeah, I agree with uh, Brian that the security services uh, show no signs of disloyalty at this point, point. Um, and uh, they're well-controlled. Uh, the system has been set up in such a way that the different security services watch over each other. There's a very large military counterintelligence department of the FSB, which is watching uh, what's happening throughout the army. Uh, there are rivalries among the different security services and their leaders. Uh, they, uh, uh, some of them hate each other and they definitely feel competitive. They're all reporting directly uh, to Putin. So uh, it would be very difficult for some sort of conspiracy to arise. Uh, it's hard for them to communicate with each other, the leaders of these services, and any single service or or subset uh, would face the chance that they would be uh, confronted by another armed force. Uh, So there are all these tripwires and Mm -hmm. obstacles to staging an effective coup, which of course doesn't mean that it can't happen. It can, uh, but I think we all agree probably that the odds are low. So what does that imply about security of of a regime like Putin's? Uh, I also think that, as as has been suggested already, that the odds of a major uh, wave of unrest, uh, uprising against the Kremlin is unlikely at this point. Um, I think if we want to entertain scenarios about, uh, to sketch out scenarios about how uh, the Putin regime could end, I think a more plausible scenario, is, is neither a coup in the short run, nor, uh, but a cut down of, uh, in which uh, the central decision makers, ultimately Putin, but the small group around him, which make all the key decisions, would find itself just overwhelmed by uh, interacting crises o- occurring all over the place in domestic politics. We talked about the possibility of, of uh, pockets of uh, economically motivated protest, uh, problems on the front, uh, casualties, reverses uh, in, the, in the front line, front line uh, fighting, uh, international issues. Uh, if, if all these things come together at the same time, Basically, one man has to react. One man has to make all the decisions. Uh, and uh, in that sort of situation where there's time pressure, where everything has to be done at once, it's very easy for, for leaders to make mistakes. These mistakes can then lead to other mistakes. The crises will interact. And then you can get a situation in which uh, the government and the presidency unable really to control the course of events. Uh, they're struggling to catch up and that can erode the popularity of the regime, its image of competence, and that can lead to real doubts throughout the system, leading, first of all, to foot dragging and uh, and uh, ineffective implementation of orders, and then ultimately to uh, people taking initiative, perhaps at the regional level, and gradually power uh, Atrophying at the center and and, and, and uh, siphoning out to different uh, emerging power centers, at which point, uh, perhaps then you could start, you might expect to see conversations starting secretly about coup or a coup or some change in the regime, perhaps even within the Kremlin, a decision to, to look for new faces, to, to try and reinvent themselves in some way. So I think that's a scenario that to me seems... I should say, not at all plausible at the moment, but more plausible than the other uh, rather extreme uh, scenarios that people have talked a lot about.
1: Yeah,
0: your point about mistakes is such an important one. I mean, obviously, the war is like case in point, but like the proclivity for these leaders to make mistakes and the more he has to rely on repression, Presumably, the less legible society becomes. I mean, it's it's a it's ripe for mistakes. But Marlene, I think one issue that has gotten so much attention is um, this role of Prigozhin and Kadyrov. And so, while Putin has been very careful to crack down and shut down um, public, the public opposition, he has, in many ways, let alone the more hawkish contingency, and allowed these voices to continue um, to call for ever more extreme measures in the war. Um, why, like, wh- why, why has he let that kind, that constituency, those voices continue to be so prominent inside Russia? Is it not a risk to him? Um, how, how do you view that?
1: Yeah, I think it's a mix of uh, 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 him having interest in having these hawkish voices speaking to one part of the population that is supportive of that, and also uh, uh, putting them in kind of tensions with other group. And I think there is a play here between. Prigojin accusing Shoigu and then the military replying. So here also, it's a kind of strategies of putting them in competition for delivering better services. So that is part of the flexibility of the system I was describing. And also this notion that, well, compared to liberals, of course, this group is not a dangerous one or is not seen as a dangerous one. It's mostly a kind of you know, ideologically motivated groups that is still kind of under control in their action. So, of course, when you read all these kind of telegram channels, for example, and you see the level of criticism put forward toward the the military, also globally, the, the, the Russian government, you can have the feeling that, okay, they could suddenly challenge the regime by being more radical. But each time we had this case, the regime was always able to close the Pandora box. Right? So I think it still had the re- capacity of opening the Pandora box so these voices can get heard and get their own audience and put the regime in tension. And then if they need, they can close the box. Maybe there will be a moment, and that's part of what Dan was saying about the, the dynamic of mistake, that the box is open and cannot be closed, right, or that you have a succession of mistakes or problems on the front that suddenly give these kind of voices accusing the regime of being too moderate to kind of suddenly become uncontrollable, but th- their their uh, uh, representation in the population is still a small one, right? So I think it's, it's mostly a kind of intra-elite narrative that is there, but I'm not sure they would have enough kind of forces, even if at the same time, I mean, the percentage of the population that is militarized, like whose job and whose families is connected to the military industrial complex or to the war itself because we have to realize uh, that for many people men who accept to go to war and be drafted war is a social promotion mechanism in Russia today for kind of rural blue collar men it's a way even if you die your f- children will have you know free access to universities access to military academic uh, the, the uh, cadet military academy and so on so there is this part of the segment of the population for whom the war makes sense in terms of social, not ideologically, but in terms of kind of social promotion. So you could imagine one day the regime being kind of bypassed by this more radical group, but I still see it mostly as a kind of fight between elites and putting the regime into tensions to keep the flexibility.
3: If I could Uh, just jump in on that, uh, uh, Andrea, Um, uh, I think we need to remember, well, The reason that Putin lets Prigozhin and Kadyrov go further than some of the others, I think, is precisely because they don't threaten him. Uh, He knows they have no friends in the elite. Uh, They're isolated actors. uh, And uh, as a result, he doesn't really worry, I think, uh, that they could constitute definitely at the moment some kind of uh, institutional or uh, organized uh, threat to his power. Uh, And so... He uses them, as Marlene was saying, I think, uh, to put pressure on some of the other actors, the the army, and also to to, to try out ideas, to float balloons, uh, uh, and to introduce, sometimes to introduce nationalists, more more extreme themes into the discourse, and to back up his own, uh, or to test out his own hunches about uh, what will fly, what won't. Uh, But I think the key issue is they're much less Powerful than they might seem, uh, because uh, they're really uh, distrusted and despised uh, by almost all the main uh, elite actors who actually do have an institutional position uh, close to the, to the center.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, we have talked a little bit about, I mean, the, there's a lot of new, not, maybe not new, but mounting converging challenges that Putin now has to face. We've talked about the economy. We're talking about the elite. Um, Tim, I want to ask you about casualties, because that's one factor that um, certainly in advance of Putin's invasion, people would point to to say, well, Putin would never do that. He's quite sensitive to casualties. Um, And and so, you know, that would be something that he might view as destabilizing. Well, that hasn't been the case. And so um, why has he proven so kind of resilient to casualties why hasn't the public organized around casualties and can he continue to sustain this rate of casualties like how long is that tenable or is or as a personalist dictator is he just really good at diverting the cost outside of his winning group i mean like how do we think about this casualty issue
2: right so so going into the war the the russian public opinion polling i think was pretty clear that Uh, the Russian public was pretty sensitive to uh, loss of life. Uh, If you ask questions about introducing Russian troops into Ukraine, uh, support was very low. Um, But if you, you know, and one of the reasons why Crimea was so popular was because it was largely bloodless. And if we think about the lesson of World War II, it cuts two ways. On the one hand, you know, Russia defeated fascism. It's what defines it as a superpower going forward. At the same time, the loss of life was tremendous. Uh, and Russians, perhaps better than m- most people, know the, know the costs of war. Um, so why hasn't there been um, a greater outcry against what has been a really large and unexpected numbers of casualties, estimates of around 200,000. Uh, casualties around 35 to 40,000 um, uh, killed in action, which is what four times higher than uh, in Afghanistan over a 10 year period during the, uh, during the Soviet uh, era. Well, one factor is if you there's a, a nice map circu- circulating around about where the um, uh, casualties are coming from, and they're not coming from Moscow and St. Petersburg, they're coming from the really marginalized, isolated uh, republics. So they don't, in a classic, uh, uh, you know, personalistic tater sense of uh, skewing policies uh, to benefit the urban groups that might threaten political stability more, you know, Putin has played uh, uh, that card well. Um, uh, also, you know, you have another marginalized group, uh, prisoners taking on a large portion of the casualties. Uh, and it, it, I think it, it will also take time, you know. Uh, for the casualties to really register to the point where uh, uh, Russians are one or two degrees of separation away from somebody uh, who's been killed rather than two or three degrees of separation. Um, So uh, also the the casualty rate is potentially problematic for Putin in that if it um, invokes another call-up, another partial mobilization uh, that indicates uh, that things aren't going well. That's a pretty strong signal um, to the Russian public that things aren't going well. And you know, as we look historically, um, it's really the uh, drafting of civilians that can provoke a popular response. So Putin has managed it well so far. Um, but I, I do think it is something to, to, to really look forward um, uh, to in, uh, uh, you know, in, in the coming years.
0: Yeah, I want to open that up actually to all of you to weigh in. I mean, would another mobilization be destabilizing? Is it in, I mean, how would Putin manage those costs? I mean, going back, the, obviously the first mobilization was very messy. Um, it was um, it, it was a display of incompetence that all Russians could see, right? Even though maybe the Russian military is fighting incompetently in Ukraine, that's far away and people see it through the eyes of the state media, But the mobilization was there for everyone to see. Um, And so presumably they've probably fixed some of their mistakes, but would another mobilization be that kind of very um, focal um, evidence that of incompetence and that things aren't going well? Marlene, go ahead.
1: Yeah, I think it will depend who is targeted, right? As long as it's a kind of provincial Russia that is targeting, and it will probably be slightly better organized than the first one. I think we will see the same thing as we saw in the first wave, first one: a wave of people leaving, and then the system stabilizing and the mood, the public opinion stabilizing a few months, a few weeks after. If they are in need of so many men that they begin to have to target kind of big cities, urban population, you know, students then I think that's more risky, right? So I think they they will try to be careful on that.
4: I would add a couple of things in here. I I think further mobilization in some way is inevitable, given the way the Russian military is fighting. They are taking the heavy losses that Tim referred to. They were forced last summer to send Prigozhin around to prisons to recruit cannon fodder, right? Uh, And they only... Went forward with the the so-called partial mobilization in the fall after the collapse of the front and Kharkiv and the problems they ran into in Kherson, uh, and Putin at that point doubled down on the war with the uh, this you know the quote unquote annexation of the four other regions inside Ukraine, um, but the troops that they mobilized over the summer, a lot of those are in the fall. A lot of those have been lost already as well, and they have real shortages in junior officers, mid level mid-level officers, uh, special forces, which means they're likely to continue to fight the way they've been fighting, which are very heavy, casualty ways of fighting. So the mobilization is continuing, I think, and will continue. The question is, will they be able to get by with sort of slow-scale, drawn-out mobilization, or will they need to announce uh, another large wave? And then I think the consequences are a bit unpredictable. I mean, I think Marlene is right that we're likely to see more people leaving again as, as they uh, try to flee the country. And we may see uh, some protests, which we saw last fall too. The question is, do those spark anything or do they die out after you know a short period of time?
1: So
0: you raised the important point of all the Russians who have left. We didn't talk about that as also sapping some of the public's capacity to challenge the regime. Presumably many of those were amongst the most inclined to challenge Putin. And the fact that They've left in such great numbers is another pressure release valve on the regime. But Dan, I want to—we have an audience question from Robert, and so we're starting to talk about things that could be destabilizing. So, could a mobilization be destabilizing? Um, Robert's asking about kind of military defeats or setbacks and whether or not that is destabilizing to Putin. As we we're just talking about, we're at a, at a pretty important point in the war where Russia presumably, or you know, we're waiting for this much. Uh, vaunted uh, offensive. Uh, maybe we're in the middle of it, and they just don't have the military capability to do it. Um, Ukraine then is likely to counter or to wage their own offensive coming up. And if they do make real gains, the Ukrainians um, is that destabilizing to Putin?
3: I think it could be. Uh, I, and one thing that uh, we've learned from political science studies and in other contexts is that that people uh, people can uh, absorb a certain level of casualties. So you don't necessarily see a strong reaction in public public opinion to casualties, but people hate casualties uh, when they're losing, when their side is not doing well, wasted lives, wasted casualties. And if uh, the perception uh, crystallizes that Russia is losing this war, uh, that it's fighting badly and that high rates of casualties, and I should say, I don't think that most Russians have any idea how high the casualty uh, level is. But if they realize that they're, they're losing tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of lives uh, in a war that's being fought badly and is going wrong, then I think that could be destabilizing uh, both within the general public and the elite. What form that would take is harder to say. And when exactly that would happen is also. Uh, very difficult to to predict, but I think that is one of the things that that obviously the Kremlin has to worry about more than more than uh, just about anything else.
0: Tim and Brian, do you want to weigh in on that? I mean, it's like this idea of like what leaders are sensitive to war outcomes, and right there's some debate. Oh, it's you know d- d- democracies, democratic leaders should be more sensitive because they're held accountable, but but that's not necessarily the case. And so I wonder, kind of. Um, how you think about um, the, the potential impact of of defeat and what that means for what Putin would be likely to do um, if faced with that prospect.
2: Well, I'll jump in. Uh, so, you know, Hein Gomans has the, the, this argument that, uh, you know, defeat in war is one of the factors that go into the likelihood of a leader being removed. And that's clearly... Um, uh, you know, front and center for the Kremlin. If you look at the, you know, budgetary spending, you know, it's greatly shifting towards the military away from any kinds of, uh, you know, social goods provision. So, you know, this is clearly front and center in their mind. There's also some research by Jessica Weeks, uh, which suggests uh, that, uh, yes, uh, military defeats are bad uh, for uh, autocrats, but personalist autocrats um, uh, tend to survive uh, uh, military defeats for a lot of the reasons that Dan was talking about earlier, just the difficult coordination problems uh, uh, among the elites. Um, now, uh, I rely on this literature a lot for how I think about Russia, um, but we also might want to think about ways in which uh, you know, Russia might be different from a lot of the cases that we're drawing on. You know, the importance of uh, being seen as a great power, um, as a way for Putin to legitimize his rule. You know, military defeat for Putin could be especially uh, damaging for that reason if, uh, you know, Russia is seen as a a second-rate power because it uh, uh, performs um, performs badly in Ukraine. Uh, Another factor is, you know, Putin has not been as ruthless towards the elite as uh, some of the other uh, elites, uh, other personalist dictators. You know, Uh, Saddam Hussein reportedly had members of his inner circle uh, execute other members of the inner circle in order to purge opposition and to cement uh, the loyalty uh, to him. You know, we we, for all of, uh, uh, you know, Putin's maneuvering, we haven't seen that level Of uh, of, of cruelty. Uh, So in in this case, Putin may be less feared uh, uh, among the elite than uh, than some others. So I think we can draw important lessons from the comparative research. I do it. Um, But we also want to bear in mind some of the ways that uh, Russia doesn't really fit the model of a typical personalist autocracy when we start talking about foreign policy.
3: I would just add, uh, based on, uh, you know, Tim mentioned this research by Hein Gomans and and Giacomo Chiosa. Uh, There's a striking result there, which is, as Tim said, uh, if you lose a war as an an authoritarian leader, uh, your odds of being overthrown go up. But they don't go up as much as we might think. Uh, Mm -hmm. It's still 50-50. So basically half of the leaders who lose wars nevertheless survive. The right. so one another, interesting
0: point I would add, sorry, it, but there's also, you know, the post-tenure fate piece of this. And so mm-hmm. I think another work yeah. by Heinz and Gomez or who else yeah. it is. So yeah. even if your risk goes up a little bit and you expect to retire peacefully, that's one thing. And maybe you're willing to tolerate that risk. But if your risk goes up and you expect that you're going to be jailed or killed or imprisoned, that's probably a different thing. Yeah. And so I think what Putin thinks or expects might happen to him is also important. Right. And
2: we we haven't seen the kinds of costs that typical wars impose on societies, on elites. Um, uh, you know, uh, there was talk of a you know Gulf of Tonkin like incident in Bransk this morning, uh, but we haven't had you know uh, uh, fighting on Russian territory uh, that would really kind of crystallize um, uh, you know public opinion in the way that it has in other in other wars involving personalist autocrats.
0: I know I I want you to weigh in, but I also, um, you know, so if Putin wanted to avoid, if if we say like that defeat is is the worst outcome for Putin because it raises his risks of instability, ideally it's something he would like to avoid, right, from a personal survival perspective. The question that comes up is, like, could he find, if it looks as if Ukraine is going to make advances on the battlefield, would he be incentivized to look for a way out? And this comes to the question that people ask often: Is can Putin sell some kind of suboptimal outcome to Russians, right? Like because he has so much control over the information space, can't he sell something that is far less of his war aims and still be okay? And I, I'm at, so, how do you think? How do you think about that part of it?
4: I actually think he could sell a defeat and still hold on to power. Um, I, I know there's a narrative out there that this is an existential you know, threat to the regime, and, and in some ways, it seems like he sees it as an existential issue for Russia. But I think he could, in Robert's question pointed to this, sell any defeat that they uh, have to endure if, if that you know comes true. As Russia was fighting against the combined might of the West, uh, we vastly. Uh, degraded their capabilities. Uh, We taught them a lesson that Russia cannot be defeated, that Russia is standing up for its existence. You know, we've heard the narrative, some of it we saw in Putin's speech, uh, I guess the week before last, you know, to the parliament. Uh, And I think there is a way to frame this. And if we add that together with what we've already been talking about in terms of some of the ways in which the regime is protected against threats from either the elites or the masses, I think he could sell it. Now, I also don't think he will because I think he's all in on this war. Uh and I think we see that from the very beginning of the war up to today that he sees this as his historic mission. He's regathering Russian lands. Uh Ukraine is not a real nation. It deserves to be and belongs to be with Russia historically. Uh and if we saw the piece in the Financial Times, I guess it was last week. Uh, where Putin is framing all of the military setbacks as, in some sense, beneficial because we found out how weak we actually are and we found it out in this war rather than a coming war with NATO. And so now we need to correct those mistakes. So uh, even though I think it's quite possible that over the summer we will see Ukrainian advances that are successful, I don't think that would cause Putin to wake up and say, okay, this was a big mistake. Uh, I've got to find a way to stop the war. I think he'll try and keep going as much as he can.
0: Yeah, I unfortunately agree with you. But Marlene, I think you wanted to come in also.
1: Yeah, no, to second what Brian was saying, and also to add that if you look in details at the Russian narrative, Russia is fighting two wars, right? One is a special military operation on the ground, and there is the metaphysical war with the West. This war cannot be lost right? Because there is no way you decide what is a victory and a defeat in a kind of metaphysical war. And I think when you look at the way Russia has been, the Russian media, especially managing the Kherson retreat, it was very much that, it had- it's part of Russia. We have an exit. Okay, now maybe the troops are leaving, but still, virtually this is Russia, and virtually we are fighting. So you could totally imagine a narrative coming from the Kremlin saying, "Okay, we are defeated because it's the West has been really too too strong, and we will be fighting." But the metaphysical war is continuing, and that's what really matters, right? So I think there are room of maneuver to play on that. I mean. losing Crimea, which I don't think will be happening, but would put probably more problems on the regime to justify that it's still okay. Mm -hmm. But losing territory, I think, can be really dissociated from the kind of metaphysical war narrative.
2: I think in terms of the broader public and the elite, there would be a certain sense of relief. Um, So I think they would be willing to entertain this message because if we think back at the start of the war, if Putin had not Uh, in decided to invade Ukraine. uh, Would he have paid any political cost uh, from people who thought this was a great idea? Uh, You know, 80% of Russians were very comfortable with having Ukraine as a, uh, an independent state. Uh, And certainly the elite's reaction um, was hardly one of of great enthusiasm when, uh, when the war began. Now, of course, once war happens, the dynamics change, and you know people have to choose sides. Uh, war creates its own uh, momentum in popular opinion dynamics, so uh, you know you th- know there are, are you know we have to take that into account as well. Um, but you know even if we look at the current public opinion polling, you know there's not a small group of Russians who would be glad for uh, 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 you know, negotiations or or some way to uh, wind things down, um, uh, you know, even if it's not, you know, Putin openly declaring, uh, you know, we were defeated um, or having a a broad perception of that kind of defeat.
0: Um, If Putin were moving towards a defeat, if Ukraine is looking like it's able to hold Crimea at risk, um, I think, we might all agree that would be the scenario in which the use of nuclear weapons becomes more likely. I mean, but but I so I want to ask you from Putin's calculus, how important is it for him to avoid defeat, a perception of defeat? Um, Might he contemplate using nuclear weapons? And then really importantly, what I really want to hear is how that would play out domestically. Um, is, is that potentially destabilizing? Would the public go along with that? Would the elite go on with that? How, I mean, I know we, we can't know this, I understand that, but just to hear any thoughts or insights into how you at least think about that um, would be really helpful. Um, Dan, maybe we can start with you.
3: Thanks, Andrea, it's <laughs> <is> an impossible <laughs> question. <laughs> um, yeah, obviously it hasn't happened before. We can't draw on previous experience. Um, Clearly, people would be shocked. Uh, And then what? Well, that in itself, the use or the the repeated threat of using tactical nuclear weapons, um, it wouldn't in itself make it that much easier to oppose Putin domestically, right? It, it, It could perhaps serve as a focal point uh, coordinating opposition against him, but any opposition would still face all these uh barriers that we 've talked about so and also people would be scared i mean it would definitely be a signal from Putin that he was ready to do absolutely anything uh, to stay in power so i 'm not sure uh that it would have any predictable i mean and any clear uh domestic political consequence other than shocking people and uh, and 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 leaving them as confused as unfortunately we seem to be at the
4: moment
0: yeah does anyone else want to and i don't want to i mean we don't have to belabor this but any any other points anyone wants to offer
4: i i guess i agree with dan that this is uh, an impossible question this scenario out, right? Because we don't know how China would react. We don't know how other global powers would react. We have evidence or at least statements to the fact that US and NATO would feel like it needed to at least take conventional strikes against Russian forces as a way of sending the signal that use of nuclear weapons cannot be used to, to grab and hold territory, even if they uh, you know, steered clear of attacking Russia directly uh, and so the war would change in dramatic ways. And therefore, the domestic impact, I, I think, would be very hard to predict.
0: I don't know. Oh, Tim, did you want to offer anything? Well, I mean,
2: I, I think the uh, international response, I think, would be overwhelmingly negative. Even China has hinted already that, that this would be problematic. And that seemed to uh, reduce some analysts' concerns about uh, uh, the the deployment of nuclear weapons. I mean, two two broader points. You know, Russia is already using nuclear weapons uh, rhetorically, right? This is a form of bargaining and coercion. Um, the other point is we've had many many crises, and nuclear weapons have been used once, uh, to horribly dramatic uh, uh, effect. Um, so. Uh, you know, take that for, 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 for what you will.
0: Uh,
1: yeah.
0: Um, we, are, we have about eight minutes left. i want to turn a little bit. And again, we've already talked some about the scenarios, Dan, you talked about kind of the meltdown. Um, another issue that kind of regularly pops up is this idea that it could, um, a defeat or the war itself could prompt Russia's disintegration, that we could see the splintering of Russia. And Marlene, I know you've written about this. And so I wonder kind of what insights you would offer, how plausible is that? Is it something we should be worried about? Is it something we should want?
1: Well, I think for the probability is a very minimal one. And I think it's not something that would be good news for international security. I understand there have been some voices calling for Russia to disintegrate kind of following the Soviet Union model. I think it's a mistake of presenting Russia today as the Soviet Union and and seeing a kind of possible uh, uh, repetition. I think the, the popular support for a secession is pretty low. So he also we could in, imagine in a dynamic process, it would grow. But people still have the memory of the 90s as something that is not really interesting for them to repeat, except for some radical groups, maybe slightly more in the North Caucasus, but not really in the other republics. We have some, you know, diaspora active in exile, but we have no idea on if they are representing anything really in the uh, ethnic republics or in the the, the Russian uh, region. It's difficult to imagine how local elites will cooperate. There is also a lot of tensions between these local elites, North Caucasus, but also, I don't know, between Tatar and Bashkir, for example. And then more globally, I think what Brian uh, was saying is that the law enforcement system in Russia is so powerful that I don't think we could imagine that Moscow would let it go uh, um uh, easily, right and so and 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 I don't think the population itself, both the ethnic Russian and the non-ethnic Russians population, that people have grievances on the ground in the region about the excessive centralization in ethnic republics, about you know imposition of Russian languages and different things. these grievances are there. I don't think people want to see them formulated as secessionisms. per se, and I think we would have a very strong reaction from the center that we'd block that. And then also last point is that if we look especially at the Muslim ethnic republic, the way resentment is formulated is no more in terms of ethnic nationalism and therefore potentially a a kind of ethnic republic. It's formulated through Islamism, for which you don't need a territory to exist. So the question is no more formulated, the resistance is no more formulated in the form of kind of let's have our own ethnic state.
0: quick follow up. So the reaction from the center, I agree would be strong. Is there any risk though that the longer the war goes, the more degraded the military is, the more constricted the budget is that it will at some point lack some of the capacity to respond?
1: I don't think so because I think the the capacity you need to respond to that kind of challenges is still in the, you know, in the 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 capacity of even a, a weakened. A, a state. And then I think just the local elites, right, the fights between local elites and the different strategies would be much more, much difficult to organize. So so I think the, the there will be strong reaction also at the regional level for not trying to move in that direction. But here also, I mean, dynamics can change the, the, the process uh, as we speak. All
0: right. So last
1: strand of questions in our remaining four minutes, post-Putin.
0: So lots of conversations beginning, you know, that it will be wise for policymakers to, you know, at least think through how Putin could go and what comes next. What kind of Russia will he leave? Um, Brian, you've written a lot on the code of Putinism. Putinism, will it live beyond Putin? What would what are your expectations or how do you think about um, what comes after Putin leaves?
4: Yeah. I mean, obviously, a lot would depend on the timing in the scenario. I wrote a piece in Foreign Affairs a little less than a year ago called uh, The Crisis After Putin. And basically, it picks up on the work that you've done with Erica France and others that suggests that post-personalist dictatorship uh, is a period when you could see some instability, maybe not right away, uh, maybe not even in the first year, but five years out, about half of Personalist dictatorships where the dictator dies in office, there's been some type of change in the regime. So uh, the political system is very hyper-presidential. And so depending on the scenario, whether Putin lines up a successor or whether something happens, you know, suddenly whoever is positioned, whether it's the prime minister uh, constitutionally to, to take the reins of power, would have the inside track. Uh, but we could imagine over time, especially in a situation in which Russia's economy is suffering, uh, potentially a war is still going on, that there would be more elite infighting about what would come next.
0: Tim, you too have written on this. Do you want to weigh in? Sure. Uh,
2: yeah, I mean, personalist autocrats tend to be replaced by other personalist autocrats. Um, but that doesn't mean that their policy preferences need to be the same. Indeed, there are good reasons to think that a uh, 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 Personalist autocrat should try to uh, uh, weaken the political base of their predecessor and take policy in a different direction. Um, Putin's u- policy towards Ukraine, I don't think, has uh, shall we say, unanimous support among the elites. So that might be uh, one area of uh, of possible change. You know, and then I've all can, always made this point. You know, looking down the road, you know, Russia is a middle-income country. Uh, if you look at a lot of the structural factors, Russia shouldn't be as uh, corrupt, as autocratic um, uh, as it is. Uh, so uh, the picture is much more mixed than I think many people um, uh, uh, many people portrayed as is, is too black and white rooted in Russian history, or Russian culture. Um, and I think it, it's a much more open-ended um, uh, process.
0: And maybe for Dan and Marlene, and maybe Marlene, we can start with you. So there's kind of the dynamic, you know, the the dynamics of leadership change, how it happens, what type of leader comes next. But Marlene, I want to ask you about your view. And it, it's very well too soon to to say anything concrete. But how is the war ch- changing Russia? I mean, and and to the extent that a leader would reflect Russians' preferences for foreign policy. um... Is there anything that you're seeing in the way that the war is changing Russian society?
1: Yeah, there was really great uh, uh, service, focus groups done a, a few months ago, so but during the war in, in many regions of Russia. And what was really interesting is to see that when people were asked to project their future, they were saying, you know, like good governance, democracy, human rights, so things that we would see as transformative for Russia and great power. And so I think that's one of the challenges that to re-envision or imagine or have a leader able to still have the kind of great power aspect of Russia that is very deeply uh, uh, ingrained, but in a transformative way and finding a way to be a great power, or at least in the narrative, but having a kind of peaceful living together with with the neighbors. But the fact that some part of the population really also ask for transformation shouldn't be uh, uh, forgotten, because I think they are part of the population that ask for reform, but they would side with their country and their regimes for the great power aspect.
0: And last question to you, Dan. I mean, kind of given that, what do you anticipate kind of as U.S.-Russia relations, even, even post-Putin? I mean, can it, or how, how do you, I mean, there's just so many different ways it could go. How do you even begin to think about that?
3: Well, I think it comes back to the nature of the post-Putin regime. If If there's a continuation. Uh, if there's another personalist dictator uh, and the problem of Ukraine is not resolved, and I think we'll have just continuation of the current type of relations, if there's a regime change to a more open, more democratic system, then I think the West, uh, I hope the West will uh, do a great deal to uh, try and consolidate that regime and make sure it lasts. I would say I agree very much with what Tim and, and Marlene uh just said uh, about uh, what's likely to happen uh, after Putin. Uh, Tim mentioned personalist dictators are often uh, followed by another personalist dictator. But I think most personalist dictators tend to be in relatively less economically developed countries. Uh, So there aren't that many personalist dictators uh, who have fallen from power in a pretty modern uh, economy and society that Russia, like what Russia still is. Um, And I very much agree that there's this gap between society, the economy, uh, which are modernized uh, in in many ways uh, uh, and the political regime, which is really quite archaic at the moment. And that gap tends to close when you have a real opening in, in the political order uh, we've seen that in other countries. Um, I very much agree with uh, with Marlene's point that the challenge will be to somehow combine this desire to be a great power with the desire to be a modern society with human rights, with uh, with democratic politics, and so on. And I think to be successful, the next Russian leader will have to find a way to move the great power theme onto the symbolic plane. Uh, Because Russians, I don't think they really care about whether their army is in in Warsaw uh, or taking back Alaska, uh, but they want to feel that they're a great power. So a symbolic recognition and uh, affirmation of that uh, might be enough. And that could be obviously more easily combined uh, with reforms to create the kind of society and political system that I think Russians want, which is one which uh, is more decentralized, which gives individuals freedom, which gives local communities more freedom uh, and basically provides the kind of living standards and type of life that they see in the most uh, advanced countries worldwide. Uh, So I think that'll be the challenge. And uh, I think uh, some a a gifted leader could manage to combine
0: those things. Dare we end on a positive note? (laughs) I think that was a perfect way to end it. Um, Tim, Marlena, Brian and Dan, thanks so much for doing this. Um, Thanks to all of you for joining us. Um, If you're interested in hearing more about this, um, please check out the stability tracker to which um, all of our panelists contributed uh, as well as several others. Thank you for listening to another episode of Brussels Sprouts brought to you by the transatlantic security team at the center for a new American security. You can find all of our previous episodes, wherever you get your podcasts, and please remember to rate and review Brussels sprouts so that new listeners are able to find the show.